Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. On this edition, Jake and I spoke with Dean Michael Bailey. We asked him about his list of fiction and nonfiction books, the uncertainty in various institutions, Davos and his thoughts of uh, that form, uh, and what he sees about public policy schools, McCourt in general, uh, and where McCourt can grow in the future. We hope you enjoy listening to this discussion and be on the lookout for more content. Thank you, Dean Bailey, for sitting down with the Georgetown Public Policy Review. This is Jake Ford here with Ms. Rayleigh Smith. Um, we're incredibly excited to talk to you about your new job and um, the year um, that just passed in the year to come. Um, I, I love to start. Um, I've had a great time looking over your website and the list of nonfiction and fiction <laughs> books. I'm a personal fan of The Adventures of Clay and Cavalier, um, which was one, one of my favorites. Um, in, uh, in undergrad, and I, I really appreciated seeing that. But I, I just have to ask, I'm just really curious, as a, as a dean and as a professor, do you, do you have time for, like, how, how do you fit in reading? Do you, do you find that it's, it's hard to fit it in around administrative and, and when you're teaching classes to have to fit in around that schedule? You know, it's funny, just one, like, you know, I work hard on the website and I have all my research and stuff. No one ever talks about the research, right? It's always, I mean, it's really uncanny. And I haven't updated that for a long time, but it's, there's something that's just kind of interesting, like, because you kind of, all this, like, oh, my bio and my picture, but really, what do you read? It's like, kind of maybe more informative than anything else yeah, at some yeah. level. What do I like, right? right. Uh, yeah, so, so I'm glad you saw it, and because and, um, I, I, I know I just put, like, kind of smart out little blurbs on things. Oh, I love the, so, the analysis part with each book, too, was fantastic. Encourage everyone listening to please go check yeah, it out. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be busy, busy updating. <laughs> Change your math. <laughs> but I will say, like, like you know, I mean, we're all busy, and but and I suspect a lot of people have a pattern like I do. I mean, one, it turns out, like, like one of the things I love about being a professor is you get to, like, the life of the mind and explore intellectual things. But it turns out, actually, it's kind of hard to read sometimes because you're, mm-hmm. yeah. it's your day job, and then, you know, so it does just just mm-hmm. a time but then be like your kind of mental energy and so forth but so for me for what it's worth i always like you know to go to bed or something i always just read something that's just i want to read mm-hmm. and i always you know that's and and every you know sometimes it's policy and politics or whatever but more often than not it's just whatever like i have no expectation of any like direct value or learning it's just what i want what is fun to What's read and yeah. i do that and so i so i'm always reading something yeah and and as as Everyone listening to this podcast, I'm sure they're curious. Are there any particular podcasts that you're like? Did you you listen to podcasts? Do you, do you find I do a lot. Yeah, and I love podcasts. And I my like little thing that I do there is I I I, uh, I don't drive to work. I walk to work. So okay. you know, a lot of people commute and listen to podcasts. I don't have that. But like when I exercise, and be, it's weirdly so because I like podcasts so much, I exercise more because I'm like oh okay. you know like it's just. Fun. Yeah, so that it's a weird little thing that kind of works. Um, so I listen to Five Thirty Eight and Vox in the weeds or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then I have like weird ones, like Japanese related, and like the one that I love. Um, they don't even do that much stuff that often, but it's Japanese samurai history or something. It's totally in the weeds. I mean, it's not even like something that I'm like that interested in. I'm a little interested, in, but like they're so they are so into it. And it's, you know, that kind of thing where you find just a really kind of obscure thing and these guys are totally geeking out on oh, it. Yeah. I find yeah. that really yeah, fun. Yeah, like 15 episodes on something really obscure. Yeah, like really, <laughs> you know, like obscure stuff. And then, you know, you can turn it off if you don't right. like it. But like that's kind of one of the, the 
geniuses of podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw you speak Japanese. What got you interested in, in that? And, you know, would you like moved and lived in Japan one day or, you know, after you finished being the dean and teaching students right. about, you know, real statistics and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's one of those uh, um, um, things in life where, where uh, a coincidence or a minor thing has a big change. And so um, when I was a junior in high school, I had a teacher who actually really liked my sister, and then I just basked in the glory of Mr. Fitzall like my older sister, and then so he was nice to me. And then he found a Youth for Understanding, it's a, a, a exchange group, and they had a scholarship, and they had a scholarship to go. They had two of them, and there was a friend, a friend of mine and I were kind of the more ambitious students, and so, you know, Stit, uh, Mr. Stitzel came to both of us, and one was to Finland, and one was to Japan, yeah. <laughs> and he, for whatever reason, had chose Finland. Chose, well, Mr. Stitzel chose me for Japan, <laughs> and so, and I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about it. I mean, couldn't have known less, and then, mm -hmm. but I went there, spent my summer year, uh, June, when a junior in high school, you know, went to high school there, oh, nice. didn't understand a word, but yeah. you, <laughs> well, you understand a lot, though, even right. without, like, especially high school is so fraught. Um, so and then you know off we go. Then I went back as a sophomore in college, and I went back after I graduated from college. And then like my wife, uh, she's she's American, but she's Japanese American, and we met via Japan and stuff. And so like really influential moment in my life. It just someone else kind of basically tapped me on the shoulder. Cool. Was the well, how was it like going back not not getting too into it? But I mean, I imagine the first time as a, as a junior in high school, it must have been a cultural shock. Was it was it was it easier to come back but harder to leave? The subsequent times you went, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, my experience with living abroad is it's a roller coaster and you're just up and down and I never stopped going up and down. Mm -hmm. Like so, sometimes you're just like, man, I love being abroad and it's like, oh, this cool, interesting, crazy stuff. And then other times, like, oh, they treat me like terribly and <laughs> I don't understand the language. And, you know, so I, I, I would just say I always had that roller coaster. Yeah, you know, from day one until. Yeah, because I spent six weeks and then one year and one year and even you know two years into it, that's you know there's there's great days and, and not yeah. so great days. Yeah, fantastic. Well, definitely, you know, I, I can talk about the subject for quite a while because I'm really interested in the impact of living abroad, especially right. in high school and um, you know all those, the policies with you know mandatory gap years. But getting to into super supportive of that, by the way. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah we, we can. Definitely. I was going to ask about that. We um, when we sat down with the GU fellows in the spring. Uh, spring GU fellows. One of them suggested that college students, their advice to aspiring policymakers would be to either live outside of your, you know, wherever you grew up, number one, and number two, to go live abroad for a year. You know, whether it was a, a gap year or study abroad and that institutions and employers should be more open to that. Um, you know, I, it sounds like you would be, you know, supportive of, of some type of policy of that nature. Yeah, I mean, A, there's a little bit of irony. My, my son is a college freshman my oldest son is a college freshman, and uh, he'll go abroad to London. And like, <laughs> you know, fair enough. But you know, like, so like, I think you should go abroad to where like London is awesome, and that's only like a quarter step towards, right. you know, Japan or Moscow or whatever, right? Yes. You know, like there's, there's places that are closer and less close. But oh my gosh, yeah, I mean, just the policy and the personal, like what it means to to be different in a place. Mm -hmm. You know, to just learn about the place in a way that you can't learn about in books, and then to learn about what it yeah. just just what it feels. You know, and I I can't speak for the whole world of what it feels like to be different everywhere, mm -hmm. but I know one time like being the only American guy in like you know a community of, of Japanese folks, and just you just start to feel like what that you know you just have a little more empathy about how that can matter in so many different places. Yeah. So I, I I really think it's it's important. 
forth. And then language, like you just, that to, to be a language, the, the, it's very hard, very frustrating, and I certainly haven't mastered it. But like just what the little tiny, small insights you get are really interesting. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, immersion is definitely the best way to learn. Yeah. Speaking now a bit to uh, your time as dean, is, is there anything that has surprised you as, as intern dean that you didn't really expect? Um, you know, we, we kind of talked briefly um, before we started uh, about your time as a professor compared to this dean. Any, any surprising uh, contrasts or anything that kind of uh, was, was a pleasant surprise starting as dean? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the thing about McCord that's great a few things. So one, you know, here we are at Georgetown, a major school with a solid reputation and solid set of faculty and everything. So we're starting in a good place. But we're also at a school where like it's a very common refrain that I've heard is like, man, like you guys are good in policy, but you can be like you have room to grow. Like this is like like the trajectory is up and should be mm -hmm. up. Like we don't have to like like I'm totally mixing my metaphors now, but it's kind of downhill <laughs> in the sense of like like this is what you should be doing. Whereas, like, you know, say you're at Ohio State, fantastic university and fantastic people and everything else. But you, you know, like, it, it'd just be hard to, you know, like you'd have even more resources, really, in many yeah. ways. But it'd be, you'd be like, man, I gotta like make this. And there's like, you know, whereas I go and, and I can do X, Y, and Z things. And people are like, yeah, we should work with Georgetown. And yeah, it's super easy, you know, because you have good students. You're here, and you know, so like the, um, the there's just a lot of opportunities, a lot of kind of just that upward trajectory with the wind at our back and downhill, whatever mixed metaphors yeah. we want to have uh, uh, for that. Yeah. So, and then, so, and then there has been no, you know, like there's no kind of dark cave underneath that, that you know, <laughs> some set of awful things or yeah. something. Um, Great. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities. Yeah, I, I think just following up on that, you know, obviously the opportunity of living in D.C., you know, and being able to take advantage of the DC market. But if you said, what's one or two things that differentiates McCourt from, you know, the other policy schools, you know, what would it be? You know, why is, you know, MPP or mm -hmm. big data really important right now? You hear about, you know, data-driven policy analysis, and somebody a couple months ago asked Paul Ryan about, did he think it was worth it? And, you know, Paul Ryan seems one day he's a policy geek, and the next day he's, you know, a conservative basher, for lack of a better term, but you know what differentiates McCord from other places, and why is you know this policy degree important in the times we live in? Right. So I think there's a lot of things, but I would say there just to, to narrow it down, I'd put it as a, a pincer of two points. And so one point is we do really a good job, I think, with our, our you know evidence-based policy, and a lot of that means statistics, but not only statistics, but that's a big part of it. And just as an aside, we had a survey of alumni recently. That just came back, and 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 we asked various classes and so forth, and the you know which which set of classes was most valuable to you, and, and the quant came back yeah. really strongly positive, and and that's because you know I know it's some, for some people sometimes there's some some you know dark days in February where it's not the funnest thing to be in quant three or you know or I guess quant two, um, but but that people out in the real world you know like some people don't use it, but a lot of people use it even if they don't use it directly, mm -hmm. so like just straight up that. But I think the other side, and this is like the pincer kind of movement that, that, that brings it together, is more and more. So we have a new data science program. I've been talking with various people in various data science yeah. area. And data science is different from statistics. It's related, but different. You know, so there's different stuff. But it's all broadly this, you know, how can we have information and analyze information in a useful way? 
And so a lot of conversations about that, but again and again, again and again, the theme is, you know, we might have people who are really good technically, but they come in, they, they're doing all this stuff that's pointless. Like, no, they have no idea why they're doing it. They're just getting data and they're like, how many people got, took a cab from, you know, convention center to here? And like, oh, okay, but who cares? You know, like, so there's a whole set of like people just kind of going crazy doing stuff that doesn't mean anything. That's a problem. Or there's another set of problem where there's like people like um, they, you know, they, they're asking the good questions and they're figuring out the right things maybe, but then no one wants to use it, right? In the organization, there's either just cultural problems mm -hmm. of like they, they're not data driven and they're intimidated by it, yeah. or you know, there's communications, or there's incentive problems. Like yeah, you know, okay, fine, we should be doing X, but if I do X, I'm out of a job. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and but just as a side, like I've seen small, this is a small example, but like there's a lot of people who are like in the data world who are like, if I were to simplify that, you wouldn't need me. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And they don't yeah, simplify it, right? <laughs> you know, anyway, so there's, there's the, the, the like bringing the actual, and whether it's statistics, data science, or, or just evidence, I mean, it could be qualitative evidence, but bringing that to an organization in a way that is useful can be implemented. And so my hope, I mean, A, I think we do a pretty good job of this, but B, as we like think about things we could do better, this is also like to do better, but is that we train people who are domain experts, um, you know, or have domain expertise, they've got some technical <coughs> skills, and then also they're just imbued in, a, um, they're doing internships and they're, you know, just doing stuff and having enough exposure to kind of real world stuff to try to start to have some savvy and some context and, and you know, like a, a straight up data scientist who's just, you know, whiz bang data scientist who's been in the basement coding all forever mm -hmm. is not going to get it done. Yeah. And then a straight up person who's just like totally like touchy feely, you know, whatever, but can't can't even understand like causal inference or, you know, at least like kind of, is that evidence or not? Or is that bogus or not? They're going to, I think, also have trouble like, you know, at that point they're just going by gut and so forth. So anyway, I think that the, the, the real kind of classic Georgetown model would be someone who can do both. And, and I think A, our curriculum, B, our location, and C, our history and what we already have and put us in a good position to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and I've always been curious, at, I'm sure like many of the, um, the court students, uh, I, I was assigned your stats book. Um, which I found actually very good. I'm sorry. Sorry. It's a good book. I found myself laughing more than I ever had at a, at a stats book. And I, and I was a math major in undergrad, so I, there was some very dreary um, linear algebra books that I had to chew through. Um, but I was, I was always curious because I, I found, and this kind of touches to a point you just, I think it was on the, uh, the undergrad to what you're saying, um, how th there's, a, there's a limit in a, a size of knowledge that one needs to understand stats to use it in a practical manner. And I, I, that was kind of one of the motivations of the books. Like, you, you know, you bring up terms that, that are complex at first, but it, the practical use is almost immediately used in the teaching, but also for you know, exercises. Um, and I think that in most of our classes, um, that was kind of a dude. Was that something you, you, you see lacking or you found lacking before you wrote the book? Or is that as McCourt is a quant? focus program. Is that something that you see as something that is lacking in the other, no, I don't want to use the other, right. like naming out schools particularly, but is, how, why do you see that as like an important part of a policy analyst going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, so my perspective is like uh, statistics is is a weird subject in a sense. Like, a more and more across disciplines, it's like the language of science. It's the language of consultant. Mm -hmm. There's like so many places where it is the language yeah. of X, mm -hmm. right? And it's you know that like. Football, you're not, Patriots aren't going to hire you, you know, but, right? You you know, the Red Sox, certainly, I don't know. Right, you know. But like, some quantitative ability. Yeah, like these, it's, and it's really a, a general language. Uh, so that's awesome. But then B, like the teaching of it, and it just, you know, like what, like, there'll be things that, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and then like, I'll like kind of read or have a student kind of be channeling some other stuff. And I'm like, man, you're making this really hard. I don't know, you know, I lose the thread. Because <laughs> you can make it hard if you want to make it hard. Absolutely. And part of this, I wonder, is part of the people who are attracted to statistics and teaching statistics kind of like being in that position of mm -hmm. the, the keeper of the, you know, secret yeah. the information or whatever. Because at the end of the day, I really think it's the, the core things that we actually talk about when we're mm -hmm. actually doing analysis there's just a few things, right? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you start to wrap, you you get all kind of wrapped around and confused, but you know, not like, is epsilon correlated with X? <laughs> if it is, you know, and then those are like technical, that's a reasonably technically little sentence there, but mm -hmm. it's not that hard to unpack that sentence and then to turn that into conventional language. And then, well, if it is, da, 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 and then we start, then the domain expertise, well, is it? And then you have to have some mm -hmm. expertise or common sense or speculation or, you know, need more evidence or whatever so I actually so that like more often than not when I read other books I'd be like man they're making this hard like I don't you know like I can sit down and like step back and do it out but I really I don't think the core is that hard yeah I certainly felt that way in undergrad working with the you know CDFs of all these you know distributions but seeing that the beauty of the practicality uh, was something I didn't really notice until I came in the court and I, boy, I tell you, I've had students come in and, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I had stats as an undergrad or, study, yeah. you know, and then I'll start asking some questions. And, and, and I mean, in my mind, I'm like, you don't know anything, you know, like, like nothing took mm -hmm. as to like what was, what was going to yeah. help us solve problems. Yeah, right. um, you know, there's some equations and, you know, I mean, <laughs> but just like to try to package it in the way that's, that's most useful. Yeah. Um, is, um, anyway, I think that's a. The, um, and I, actually, I think others now, when they're teaching it more and more, are kind of moving in that direction. And then weirdly, just as a side, and then here comes data science, mm -hmm. which is totally, like, totally different. Like, so data science is like, you know, because the more, like, in the, like, there's just a few simple problems. It's not just endogeneity, but it's a lot of endogeneity, you know. Right. Just, we're gonna, you know, we're starting to realize, okay, yeah, keep, keep tabs of that. And then along comes data science, which is like, you know what? We have no idea of anything, but the computer can try every possible, you know, iteration of everything, and we might be able to predict something even if we have no idea how we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of works, by the way. And like, right. oh man, that like by design, it's complicated. Like, yeah. And, and so there's this there's this weird like kind of just um, evolution. And, and just one last thing on this, just the, the it's you know like the core OLS and yep. the core things and statistics they've been around for 100 plus yeah, years, right? Years. Core ideas, but man, just it evolves like it just it's really it's a much more dynamic um, feel than you'd think given that the core hasn't changed but but mm. and so whether it's views of how to do causal inference or views about how to do uh, machine learning and so yeah. forth it's quite dynamic actually yeah
Uh, and so you talked about practicality, and I think that's a good segue into Davos, you know, which is a you know interesting way to get to, to Davos from statistics. But uh, <laughs> you know, that was but, quite a, a segue. <laughs> <laughs> pivot, uh, pivot, and leap. <laughs> that was a nice joke. Yeah. Uh, but it is practical, and the reason why it works is because you know you had a bunch of you know rich people and, and government leaders and world leaders talk about practical things or new things. My company, for example, was there talking about the future of automation. You know, and and how automation is going to influence, you know, the future of work and the future of labor and all these lovely, you know, things that, you know, policy people are looking to debate. You know, are these forms useful, you know, like a Davos, like a, you know, a lead conference, you know, which is coming up in March for our listeners? You know, are these types of things useful, you know, and do we really get some insights uh, from them, you know, given today's economic times where you have the U.S. taking a more America first, but we're mm -hmm. open for business, but we're going to use tariffs, which means we really don't know what we want to do uh, because our president is crazy, uh, <laughs> policy that it seems that we have on the international stage. Yeah, so I've never been to Davos. Um, actually, when, when I was in grad school, they had one um, at Stanford, and I was a scribe or something for a, and it was World Economic Forum, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. they had a version there. So I, I guess I wasn't that. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, on the one hand, just like, I think kind of talk for people talking to each other, smart people, interesting people, you know, kind of talking to each other and seeing what's going on and, and interacting. And, and by the way, I totally see how like for business and like if you're in a business, like to, you know, just kind of have a sense of like what's hot, get to know people. And that's, you know, how connected people, it's how networking works. So I totally see like how it makes sense and these kind of things should continue. Um, at the same time, it does seem like the, um, there's this worry that it's superficial. There's a worry that there's kind of groupthink. There's a, right. you know, um, all these things. And so for, you know, Donald Trump, actually, it is interesting. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, one, like, I, I can't believe that when he goes there and says kind of nice things and acts nice, that they, believe like, it. they have to know what the whole storyline is here. <laughs> like, and, and, and so that just seems interesting to me that people seem to, like, oh, he's a changed man. You know, like, th that, that doesn't seem like yeah. the right inference as opposed to this is how this fits in his broader work um but i will hand it to him one thing that he did that or that he and others in different countries represent is cracking that um there were certain things that you know i mean i think the davos crowd kind of runs lefty but still included a lot of very wealthy people a lot of businesses and then the various con consensus that would emerge kind of a left version of that consensus and a right version of that consensus and for better or for worse I think Trump politically here at home was willing to, to he, he did not situate himself at least in his rhetoric now mm -hmm. interestingly we could talk about what he's actually doing and it may well sit very well in one of those the right version of that consensus conservative version of that consensus. But like politically, he was willing to, to say stuff and do stuff that people at Davos certainly weren't saying last year or maybe right. two years ago or whatever. Yeah. And it, it doesn't surprise anyone that the uh, the rate of confidence in the presidency and the Congress are at all-time lows. But something that surprised me was that there's a failing uh, level of confidence in higher, higher education yeah. institutions. How, how do, is there how, how does one reverse that trend? What, what, what is the role of like one institutions in, in, in reversing this? It's really we think trend. a lot about that. And so, and I don't know the answer, but I'll tell you 
like how we think about it. I was hoping you had like a like a one yeah, sentence here's solution. Right. solution. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you should bottle it, patent it, yeah, and then yeah, sell like it to everybody. Break an emergency. <laughs> right. uh, but it is especially just that, and uh, I think you're referring to that statistic that like confidence in universities is just, and then it was just, you know, it used to be not a big difference between Democrats and Republicans, Correct. and then it's just Republicans. It's partisan. Are, yeah, it's, it's very partisan. You know, mm -hmm. so suddenly it's just universities. You know, I know we're kind of lefty yeah. or whatever, yeah, but like they used to have confidence. You know, mm -hmm. that's been, a, you know, since the 60s, there's been a liberal, and probably earlier, you know, universities have, that's kind of their role, or yeah. that's, you know, their reputation. So that is striking. So, um, let me just, two things. One is that Georgetown wants to be a hub where people can come together, right, and just try to be a space where, and, 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 and then, you know, some, I think we kind of have to work a little harder than to try to have more conservative voices, because that's a, yeah. just a little harder, that's a, they're less, they're not already here necessarily, mm -hmm. so that's definitely something we try to think about. But by the way, we can't forget, that doesn't mean, we want to be a hub for everything. There's other parts of this country that are also not represent. you know, it's not yeah. just, oh, we need conservatives, and we can look at the country, and there's a lot of ways in which we're not perfect, and we will never be perfectly representative of this mm -hmm. country, but, but like, that's a thing that we want to be, like, you know, our invite list, we want to really craft that and try to be, um, you know, um, bring together lots of different folks. But that, so that's one angle of it, and we're trying X, Y, Z things on that. Then um, the other angle, though, this is just, uh, so I've talked a lot with Mo Alifi, who's our, um, mm -hmm. the director of our Institute for Politics and Public Service. And so he's got, um, you know, programming, but also ambitions to try to do things in this type related to this. And I'm quite convinced by, or, or I've been thinking about this, that there's like, this is really like um, simplifying it. But there's two ways to think about how we like, ha you know, there's people have different views, right? And so one way that like a lot of people will have come up with some idea that looks something like the following. Why don't we have a bunch of Republicans and a bunch of Democrats or a bunch of red state people or a bunch of blue state people or, you know, you name the difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have them come together and talk? And then, like, well, you know, you're the blue state, and you're the red state. Well, what are you going to talk about? Well, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You know, I mean, that, like, what else is there? Like, 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 even at best, people could just be polite, but in right. the back of their mind, thinking like, man, you're really, really right? You know, and at worst, it can make things worse, right? So, like, that's still part of like what should happen at a university. People should be challenged. And it humanizes the other side. So yeah, but see, yeah, but I so what I think the other version though is where what if we just start bringing together and I think universities do this implicitly, but we have to recognize just bring people together that are from red. Let's just say red and blue. There's all kinds of divisions, but red, you know, red and blue states. Bring people together and they have like they're doing something together that's not the thing that they hate each other about. It's the thing that they like each other about, right? And like so back in the day, like World War II did a really good job of unifying people, yeah, right? right. But, and we don't want to do that, but like cheering for the Hoyas, you know, yeah. or finding, you know, find just so like, like, you know, dorms, right? People are roommates of people who have different political views or mm -hmm. whatever. And then they hang out and then whatever it is just to have fun or whatever, you know, whatever that yeah, unifies right. them there. And, and universities can be a place for that where people have like deep human ties. But just trust me, at least in my view, you're not going to have deep human ties when the the only way you know someone is they're a pro-life or pro-choice and you're on the other side. Yeah, like, right. You're just not. You're, you're weird if you think like, oh, wow, you you have the exact opposite view on this issue. And wow, awesome. I'm, I'm like, imagining just Scott King and Bernie Sanders in, <laughs> <one> race, <laughs> in like an adult 
uh, dorm room situation. But no. But I, had I, they been roommates when they were 18, they'd be buddy, buddy, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, no, that, that's a great point. And so do you think that lack of personal ties, I know, say, maybe about five years ago, it would be Democrats or Republicans would sit together in the State of the Union. You know, and try to build those personal ties, if you will. You think the lack of those ties, you know, in this era of Congress last, you know, I know partisan has been, you know, Newt Gingrich and company for the last 30 years, if you will. You know, but this last five, 10 years has caused some of the erosion in Congress and inability to get things done and the lack of confidence we have in Congress as an institution. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things, you know, so, but, but it doesn't help. Um, I mean, I think it's just like a lot of people are going back to their districts, and the people in those districts aren't, you know, the districts are gerrymandered, and there's a debate about whether they're you know, but I, I think, you know, a lot of districts are gerrymandered, a lot of districts are homogenous, and they don't see the other side, and they don't see benefit from seeing the other side. Your media now, the, media, the way we get media is incredibly, you know, I'm not like a big Twitter guy, but I do see it, and like I get all worked out. What's the chef got? The chef got. He got shut out of Cafe Milano. We should yeah. boycott it. Wait, well, oh wait, he didn't. You yeah, know, but like he wasn't on the list. Yeah, you know, but whatever. Like that kind of stuff is mm -hmm. just. But that's you know, like, hey, even if he had gotten shut out, then we'd be all like, uh, or you know, people would be all upset about it. But is that in the grand scheme of things? But you know, people, there's just little, 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 little things yeah. that are building up, and so. Um, you know, anyway, but like polarization in Congress, the trend has started, and the you know basically it's the um, I'm sure I'm saying something you know, like in the '60s, the, the reason there was no polarization was because the Democratic Party was actually two parties. It had right, right a segregationist party and a liberal party, and right. they, they all were Democrats, and so that's why we weren't polarized, is because there was there was huge polarization, but just there was it, all the Democratic Party. Yeah, it was within a party, and in fact, I mean, like this city was burning in 1968. Yeah. It was burning. There the were there were down. national yeah. guards shooting at people. Right. We were polarized. We were <laughs> polarized, but just not. It wasn't Democrats versus Republicans. It was on a different dimensions, right? So, like, you know, um, so anyway, but the partisan polarization has preceded Twitter and, and Facebook and everything else, obviously. But boy, it doesn't seem like it helps. Mm -hmm. And so that's something we have to. Dude, and just an aside on that, I do think it's fascinating. Like you just look at when a new uh, communications technology comes on board, society can really shake. And you know, like the old printing press, and then you know those wars of the you know the Catholics versus the Protestants mm -hmm. were brutal. And honestly, it was the printing press. You know, this is old, but like it kind of was, right? And then like I don't, I haven't seen anyone really argue this is the same way. But I wonder, you know, like in the 30s, like radio became a thing. And the world shuttered, you know, quite a bit. Like, in yeah. the U.S. kind of avoided that, but we were, you know, people were worried, and there were people using that, mm -hmm. and there was some, some thing, you know, it didn't, it worked out for us fine, and other countries not so much. And I don't know, is it like radio? But you know, and then, and then when we had, then, then there was only three newspapers and three um, uh, uh, TV stations for all that time. It had to be unified. They had to be objective or fair because you couldn't. The, the market structure, you know, if CBS was democratic, it just didn't, it just didn't fall that lose way, a lot of viewers, yeah. right? And so then, like, whether that's too deterministic in terms of media technology, probably, but there's still something interesting patterns about how there was, um, again, there was this polarization, there were still riots and everything else, but there was at least some unifying of the media that maybe softened some of that. Yeah. And now we have this thing that, that if anything, and again, there's other causes, but it, it's probably accelerating. And just just a couple more questions. I don't, we, we really appreciate your time, but we don't want to keep you all afternoon, though I would actually love to. 
especially because there's been so much amazing literature written on 1968 that I can talk about that for uh, quite some time. But, but I'm, I'm really curious, not to dive into another rather meaty subject, um, looking at your website, you, you've written a great deal about the courts, um, and that, that, that seems to be one of your uh, your focus areas. It, and I, do, do you feel like that's something that isn't focused on enough? You know, we, we talk about um, partisan gerrymandering, and that's implicitly for the legislature. Um, do, do you think part of what is causing the, the split between Democrats and Republicans, is that going to bleed over into the courts? You know, you want, one can, you know, we're not, we're not a democratic institution, a big D democratic at GBPR. We're not going to land based Donald Trump and um, all his policies, but a lot of people are concerned about the, the quality of the applicants that he's putting up to the courts. But do you, do you see that as, as someone who's studied and, and wrote about the courts at a great length um, as an institution that isn't getting the focus um, that it should be on an equal level as the executive and the legislature? Yeah, the, the courts are uh, very interesting, I think. And on the one hand, maybe they're not getting enough, but I almost my initial reaction as you were asking the question is they're getting too much attention oh, or like in an, the ideal world is the courts kind of sit back. It's a set of people we respect. They have different views and there's kind of different, you know, politics. We'll mm -hmm. put this set and that set and so forth. But hopefully we've softened the edges, mm -hmm. you know, on them. The process will soften the edges. Uh, and then those folks sit back and try to keep us in mind. Right. And that's like an idealized romanticized, if you will, mm. version of the courts. Um, and then when it becomes so like, no, this is everything. And boy, I mean, you know, when you talk to Donald Trump, actually, obviously was a very complicated political figure, but man, you know, the Gorsuch, promising mm -hmm. Gorsuch was so influential in locking oh, down yeah. a problem, a politically problematic wing for him. And he, he locked them down. Like he, 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 in general, he was kind of all over the map. In general, he's hard to pin down. And, but that, he was like, here's a list of people I will yeah, nominate. Right. And then he, and he did. Yeah. And he, you know, and that's the thing. I, I do think like the Democrats underestimate sometimes, like, you know, Trump is unpredictable and obnoxious and da 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 da. But when he needs to, he'll, he is like a little lapdog mm -hmm. to a set of, you know, Republican voters who care a lot about that, he is not, he's not going to tell them to, to you know, screw off. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, he's just blustering around, whatever. No, 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 no. Like, and just kind of keep an eye on, like, when it right. comes and look at the Fed, like, on the Fed. He's like, oh, you know, like, he could do, you know, Joe Arpaio on the Fed. Dad, why not? You know, da, da, da. He's no. Floating around on, he floated around on the Fed and then he went, but everyone he was went with, like, he went but, like, that's where I think conventional pick. At the end of the day, there's some people with some big money people and said, look, Okay, knock it off. Yeah. And then all this stuff we were saying about that we should be, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, austerity and da da da. That was <laughs> knock it off. <laughs> None of that. Get serious. Put in the person who's going to do exactly what Janet Yellen does and knock yeah. it off. And he's like that, you know, like and I, even for Mike Pence, like you know, all this like da da da. da and then really at the end of the day, someone, you know, this one was a little more touch and go to be honest. But like at the end of the day, like look, if you're gonna these folks. They need Pence and they need Gorsuch, you know, or a Pence-like figure and a Gorsuch-like figure, mm -hmm. and he does. So anyway, so he the like, in the room, yeah. or you know, but there's a set, that, and so he he is not always bluster and all like unpredictable. Yeah. And, and so on the courts, the fact that it has been so politicized and that Gorsuch, um, 
is achieving political goals makes me nervous. Nervous, because mm-hmm. now, like, what are the Democrats going to do? Like, the Democrats, a, they, they could be mad. And you know, by the way, the, you know, if you had a huge tidal wave and there's President, you know, uh, Sanders <laughs> with a 60 vote majority in the Senate and the majority in the House, they can expand the Supreme Court. You know, legislatively, you could do that, right? You could, and then, uh, you know, is that a good idea or not? I don't know, but that could yeah. be, you know, like that—that's a kind of like political attention I'd rather not have, even yeah. though I'm not a fan of what transpired so far. I'm also not a fan of like a, a just a political slugfest on that. Um, and I do my read. I, I think Roberts. I mean, Roberts has some strong views, and there's a few places where, I, like, I'm like, I don't, I just. Don't get kind of what he says, but I think in general he's the kind. You know, there was a Republican president who picked a and he picked a conservative, but the conservative is gonna. He's now like, okay, I am now the justice of the Supreme Court, in this case, the Chief Justice, and I'm going to try to, you know, mm-hmm. have judgment and not get kind of bogged down in it. And to be honest, I'm not. Gorsuch does not give me that confidence. He's seen so far, um, and, and Alito. You know, Kennedy, if anything, goes, you know, is all over the map, he's he's, but he's very independent. Yeah. So give him credit for that. Um, yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, there's one successful placement on the court, and there, there's a few septuagenarians on the oh, court right now. So there, there's a possibility that President Trump has one, two, three you never know. more nominations to go. So it, it is, you know, it, it makes two-term sense. Two-term President Trump does. Yeah, yeah one-term, absolutely. I don't know. Two-term, yeah, absolutely. yeah, but it's not just the Supreme Court. You look at circuit courts, district courts. You yep. know, I saw in Axos that you know McConnell's legacy is going to be the 13, 14, you know, district court, you know, judges that have been confirmed in the last, you know, 12 months, all over the place, mainly 40-year-old conservatives who are going to sit on the court for a dec- you know, several decades, yeah. you know, a generation, and that's a generational policy. Do you, you know, and it seems the courts over the last. You know, we'll call it since um, Warren, you know, but even before, but we'll just use him as a, you know, basis point. I've been more political, if you will, in terms of, you know, making policy in a sense where legislature and the executive branch, you know, haven't or have failed to see the, you know, humanity in whatever they're doing. Do you think that's a problem that our courts are, you know, striking down maps for in gerrymandering, for example, ruling on, you know, human rights issues or, you know, uh, you know, DACA is tied up in the courts and, you know, other things have just been, our first response is not just to go to legislative solution, but mm-hmm. oh, I'm just going to, I don't like this, I'm just going to sue. I'm going to find some jurisdiction and sue, you know, and, and see if I can get my way in the courts because I'm not getting my way legislatively. Yeah, so a few things. So one, I'm going to carve out gerrymandering and then yeah. <laughs> opine on everything else. I mean, I think gerrymandering is a classic place where, like, we have, there's a mechanism whereby the, the normal electoral politics, which by the way, that is the fundamental check on government is electoral politics, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the fundamental, it's obvious, the fundamental part of our democracy, the first part of democracy. Mm-hmm. Separation of powers and federalism and you know, bill of rights are important, but they come after democracy via legislative you know, democracy. And there's just a fundamental obvious mechanism where like, it's, it's self, um, it doesn't work, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, the incentives are so obvious to, to corrupt the system yeah. and distort the system you know, and you've seen a million of those things, right? So I, I just, you know, I know the standards are hard, but I just think that's a place where, like, that's what the courts do. They need to protect democracy and and, and, and something, mm-hmm. right? At least make it harder to gerrymander. You know, there's going to be some gerrymandering. And right. to have none would be crazy, too. There's, you know, whatever. But, like, 
just carte blanche on this is, is I, I just think it's, it's the, that's what courts are meant to do. So that's a very, that would be a very activist kind of, I don't know if activist is the right word, I think it's appropriate, but whatever, that would obviously be, they'd yep. be inserting themselves in a, in a complicated debate. Um, I have a weird view of the courts more generally on this. Um, uh, like it's not that like they should or shouldn't be, I mean there is, you know, there's, I, I guess, you know, play by play here, you know, I gave you my version on gerrymandering, you know, go down the list of like, oh, they should do this, but not that, and this, you know, and probably most people have their views on that. I also view the, view, the court as an interesting mechanism, which I like to think of, um, like when I teach my political science class, uh, you know, like there's um, separation of powers, and we need, and you can get stuck pretty easily, let me just put it that way, like you can get stuck where it's hard to change policy, mm -hmm. right, even if like policy would be good to change, right, like it'd be a good thing, but there's just all the veto players, and, 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 Committees. Committee. There's committees. There's separation yeah. of powers. There's federalism. There's you know the election years. Just all, this, yeah. all this stuff, right? And so sometimes the court. I like the court every once in a while. And this is weird, I know, but but some other people have kind of thought about this this way. The court can kind of knock things out of equilibrium a little bit, and then the, the political system isn't helpless. Like if we really don't like what the court does, and so like I love the case of like the two things happened back to back in the seventies: abortion and death. So the court, you know, and by the way, like honestly, just looking back, like is there really a right to abortion in the in the Constitution? That's they were squeezing that thing pretty hard to get to that. Honestly, I think, right? You know, like, and they did. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, but because it was just hard to just, people, you know, the country was. Some states were legalizing, but it was kind of stuck in some level, and they did. And then, you know, the political process has had a lot of bites at the apple. And it's just like, you know what? Actually, we, now we've seen what that means. We're del deliberating the heck out of this thing. We're really thinking about it. And it just hasn't moved mm -hmm. to, to pull it back. It's, it's moved on the margin, a fair bit, actually, on the margin. And I mean, in some states, it's, it, the state does not have abortion providers, right? Mm -hmm. and so anyway, you kind of just pushed us into a new place. And then the, 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 the democratic process is kind of feeling its way back to what makes sense. Death penalty, the Supreme Court came in and said, you know, death penalty, no, can't do it, you know, like, right? And there's a very specific reasoning and so forth. But at the end of the day, death penalty stops. And the system, for better or for worse, but the democratic, the small d democratic system was like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> we like that. But that's pivoting back, you know, in a right, lot of but, places. Right, but it, it just allowed the system to kind of like be like, hey, try this out. Yeah. It's like, try the broccoli. Experiment. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, and on abortion, they're like, ah. But then they're like, oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> and it just chewed that up and spat it back out. Now, as it happens, the whole democratic system, small d again, democratic system has moved. And it's one of the really, really interesting things that we've seen. Evolution is people like, oh, people are less supportive of the death penalty, right? But it's not now because the courts have banned it. It's because, but in part, maybe the courts banning it at once maybe kind of gave people the idea, like, hey, we could get rid of but went back to full board death penalty all the way. And I mean, in the 80s, it was getting more, more, more death penalty. And then there's this evolution away. But the courts had this interesting feature where we can kind of try stuff sometimes. And so yeah. honestly, is that really the way that you know, should be done or not? But I kind of like in you know, a separation of powers that, is, that has such a strong um, status quo bias, which is the United States system. Yeah. The courts have this, this, you know, they still have to have reasons. Right. And it's not just purely like, hey, let's try this, you know. But there's a reason, you know, they had a reason for why they said there's a right to abortion. And, linked it back to stuff. And they had a reason for why it was not fair, the death penalty as it was at the time. And, you know, they have a reason for like campaign finance. You know, they have reasons for saying what they say on campaign finance. And, and now we're living uh, the experience when there's, you know, a 
lot less regulation on campaign finance. Do you think there should be regulation? What's that? Do you think there should be regulation on campaign finance? I'm actually on the side of like being generally a little nervous of that. Like um, I'm more on the side of like like I think there should be public financing. I strongly think there should be public financing. Uh, um, but I do get nervous of just saying um, uh, you know people got something to say. And so public financing, and I get super nervous about foreign influence. Right, that really yeah. unnerves me. I feel like like I, I feel like China in the, the late right. you know nineteenth century or something, and all the these you know they come in and they just find the pressure like that, like how does Britain rule India? They find the pressure. Obviously, it wasn't campaign finance, but they, <laughs> they found the pressure points to divide people. Yeah, and then it's easy. It's just just taking candy from babies at that point, you know, right? And that's you know like so that's yeah. a big picture thing that makes me nervous. But imagine we could set that concern aside, like. Like yeah, there's rich people who want to do stuff, but like, look, Jeb Bush raised a ton of money and he was a disaster. He did nothing, right? And and like, if we had like stopped him from raising money, we would have, you know, a collateral damage might have been, you know, Sanders raising money or who's that, the the, the millionaire, um, uh, uh, Stevers or something. I'm sorry, there's a there's a liberal uh, anti uh, global warming guy out there from California. That who, who's you know, yeah. but that guy, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. out there doing that, you know. And I know there's maybe more yeah. people like you know, more Adelsons and more whomever, mm -hmm. but you know, man, it does get. Um, I just get a little nervous about um, shutting down people talking, and why, and oftentimes we, like Trump, Trump didn't do this by raising money. He oh. did this by by playing the media like a fiddle, like a fiddle yeah. Yeah. right? And there's there is money there, but the money is the least. Of last explanations for his success, I think. And yeah. oftentimes money, people like, you see those fake ads and people are like, give me a break, you know, right? Like, um, anyway, whereas like say the state where it does matter maybe more is a state legislative or city council, really obscure stuff and suddenly someone, some guy has the most beautiful signs and has 20 volunteers. Now that makes me nervous, but maybe that's where like public financing at the local level and so forth and then, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I've been, Really curious and excited to ask this, this final question, um, especially as, as Disraeli and I are um, will be graduating. Um, you, you can hold back your tears. You will not. You will no longer see us. Congratulations. Uh, in, in McCord, Thank at least. Um, but I, I think like a lot of McCord students, you know, we, we got excited to, to come into this program um, with the goal of af after our two years or you know three years worth um, that we were going to go into some vein of public service. Um, as, as this is a Constantly evolving and challenging time for that field. Any, any advice for the, the next generation of, of public servants, of um, the policy analysts, um, the, for future MPP and um, you know, prospective students out there right now listening, as they eagerly are, I'm sure. Um, and any just parting words of wisdom that you, you would give the next generation? Yeah, wisdom. I don't know. I, so <laughs> come to McCord. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, step one. Uh, yeah, step step one. one. Come to McCord. <laughs> But yeah, also you know. So, um, but I think uh, let's just I'll just have two categories that come immediately to mind. Is one is just be like interested in stuff, or you know, follow your interests, and, and yeah, listen to the weird podcasts and the mm -hmm. weird whatever. And and as you kind of just listen to yourself, like let what excites you. And if it turns out at the end of the day you're doing samurai history or whatever, and that's it, then 
do the, you know, and that, maybe it's hard to make money on that. You got to figure it, but like, you know, so A, you're going to just learn stuff, follow stuff. You're going to have a new set of, you know, voice and, 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 and add, you know, value to that and so forth. So, you know, there's obviously a formal curriculum where you kind of, and I think it's a good thing to be pushed into certain directions you might not want to be in, but also just listen to, you know, what you, Literally, for broadcast, but more figuratively, <laughs> listen to what interests you and so forth. And then the other thing I'd say is, as you're doing stuff, um, and this could be you know before graduate work, or even if you don't do graduate work, or after graduate work, or during graduate work, really have an eye on 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 being the person that, that helps and helps others do stuff, <laughs> right? And so it's not so like when you come in. And like you're in a job or something, and you're like, oh, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? Mm -hmm. And you gotta look after yourself, obviously. But like, really, like, like, man, just and it could be small things, but just like, be figure out a way to be helpful. Like, a, it's just like you're gonna be happier because mm -hmm. people will be happy to see you. <laughs> you know, instead of trying like, what am I getting out? Why would I do that? That's a pain. You know, like just like, you know, like how can I be helpful? And I actually think. A, you'll be helpful, and hopefully you're part of something, doing something good, and it could be small, but good. And then I do think also the opportunity is just you're going to learn a set of skills, you're going to have a reputation, of, of, you know, people are going to, people are dying to have smart people who are committed and you know willing to help. And so that's a, a, a general piece of, of, of thought that I would have. Yeah, I, I know we're both very hopeful that there are those companies out there who are eager to hire the next generation of policy analysts, but. But thank you so much for your time, Dean Bailey. Yeah, this has been a fantastic you. conversation. We really appreciate it. I'm, I know all of our listeners are really um, going to love this episode in particular. But thank you so much for your work over the past year as Dean. Um, and thank you for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Enjoy it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www dot gppreview.com our twitter at gp policy review or our facebook gpp review thank you